Amen. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who has a, an active role in our lives, that you have changed us, transformed us, conformed us into your image, made us into, adopted us into your family, made us into your sons and daughters. And Lord, what a privilege, what a blessing that is. And Lord, I pray as we go to your word right now that we would receive your word being ministered to by your spirit as we learn of your son. And Lord, I just pray that each of us would leave this place closer to you than the way that we came, the greater passion for the lost, a greater burden for this world that so desperately needs you. But Lord, above all else, a deeper love for you that will be reflected in all that we say and do. So Lord, we love you and we praise you. You're a great and awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel. I'm going to openly confess that I just ran in here. So forgive me. I was being a dad. My son was playing in his all-star game, and he was pitching, so it was kind of hard not to be there. And they won their game, and I blasted over here, and here we are. So God is good. All right. All right. Turn your Bibles to Judges chapter 11. We're going to finish off looking at chapter 11, and Lord willing, tonight, we'll look at chapter 12 as well. Now remember, just by the way of reminder, that Judges is really a book that shows seven cycles of sin. It covers about a 400-year period of time during which Israel repeatedly falls into the same trap. They're doing well. They have a godly leader appointed by the Lord. They're walking with Him, walking with God, being led. And then as soon as that leader dies, as soon as that judge dies, almost immediately they begin to follow the false gods once again. Because they lose sight of the Lord without someone there to remind them. That's why we need the Holy Spirit, you guys. Amen? He's a constant reminder of whose child we are and where we ought to be looking. And where our focus needs to be. So the judge would die. Israel would rebel. They'd start to worship the false god. God would bring judgment. Israel would be in bondage. Eventually in bondage, it would cry out for a deliverer. He would bring them a deliverer again. And then once they repented, and it would start all over. And again, it sounds a lot like our life sometimes. Doing really well with the Lord, walking in the fullness of the Spirit, start to struggle, get our eyes off of God, start getting our eyes on the world, and and we come to a point where we need to repent and be restored. Now, over the past few weeks, the Lord had been aroused in His anger against Israel yet again, but this time it was different. This time, if you remember from chapter 10, they came to Him, but they had turned to their false gods so many times that the Lord this time said, I'm done with you. No more. I'm not too bad. You don't go turn to your false gods and ask them for help. You know, run to Baal and ask Baal to help you out. Ask the moon god to give you a help out. Ask the rain god. And for you and I today, it would be like the Lord turning to us after we've devoted our entire lives to our careers. And now we're struggling. We turn to the Lord and He says, let your career help you. Let your bank account help you. You let your uh, bench press help you. Whatever it is you're into, right? Whatever that thing is that you hold as being your strength, why don't you turn to that? And as we're, just to remind you, the reason they turned to the false gods was not because the gods were so attractive necessarily, but the practice of serving the gods was attractive. If you remember, they would have temple prostitutes. So the guys would go, oh yeah, that, I'm down for that god. That sounds pretty good. Come down here and you can have sex with the women. Oh, that sounds like great worship. Yeah, let's do that. And you laugh and you say, oh, but that's, you know, that's the gods of yesterday. Well, we have those same gods today. The false gods of this world, of, of physical pleasure and the the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. And when they finally did cry out to the Lord again, he told them, I'm done with you, it's too late. 
But you know what? The great thing about our God is He's a God of love and grace and mercy. Because they repented anyway. Even after God said, okay, I'm done with you. He says they turned from the foreign gods. They turned back to the true and living God. And when He saw their true heart of repentance, He restored them. And so we then got to chapter 11 last week. And I want to say this about the chapter we're going to look at tonight. Because it deals with an issue that everybody in this room deals with. And the issue is your tongue. James chapter 3, I was going to read it, but it just tells us very clearly in James 3 that our tongue, though it's a small instrument, has huge impact on everything we do. And the sad part, I'm going to read this to you. It says, For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Indeed, we put bits in a horse's mouth that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at, at ships. Although they are so large and driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder. Even so, the tongue is a little member. It boasts great things. See how great a forest fire it kindles. And the tongue is of fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set against our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. That's pretty direct, isn't it? And the point is that we're going to get to the text tonight, and we're going to finish up looking chapter 11 And we're going to see that the tongue can get man in trouble. And we're going to see that our tongues can both pour forth fresh water and bitter water at the same time. And everybody in here, there's times when we're pouring out fresh water and times when we're pouring out poison with our mouth. Now, last week we saw the man that God uses. If you were here, just as a reminder, if not, get the CDs. They're always free. But remember, the man that God uses isn't usually somebody we would choose. Remember, it was a man by the name of Jephthah. Remember Jephthah? Now, Jephthah was a man who was rejected by his own family. His own brother sent him packing, said, you're, you're, the, you're the son of a prostitute. You're not really a part of the family. Get out of here. So they sent him packing. He, he gathered up some of his own men to follow him because it's, the Bible says he was a mighty man of valor. And then he started to go out and attack the enemy that everybody else was afraid of. Well, now the Ammonites started to come against Israel and they were all in a panic because they didn't have anyone to lead them. So they ran and got Jephthah. And brought him in, and they anointed him king. Now, well, not king, but deliverer. Now, the great thing about Jephthah was, remember when they brought him back, he didn't say, too late. He didn't say, you could have had me before. Oh, you guys dissed me before. Sorry. And you know how our flesh is. If somebody doesn't recognize us right away, we get, you know, prideful. And Jephthah did not do that. He came back, and he was a man of humility, and he responded when he was called. He held no grudges. And then he used great wisdom. If you'll remember from last week's text, before he went and attacked the Ammonites, the first thing he did was give them a chance to, to make peace without battle. He called to their leaders and said, Hey, guys, what's this fight about? And they said, Oh, you took our land. And he, he reminded them, No, we never took your land. God gave us the land. And it was because you guys attacked us. It was because you were out of God's will. God gave us the land. And now it's been 300 years, we haven't said anything up until now, we're not giving it back. Well, then the Ammonites attacked, and we know that he won the battle, but there's one last thing I want to point out before we get to tonight's text, is right before he went into battle, he did something very foolish. Because even though Jephthah, as it says in the text, was a man filled with the Holy Spirit, he was a man of the Word, he was a man of great faith, he's listed in Hebrews 11 in God's Hall of Faith, At the same time, with all those things being true, this faithful, spirit-filled man of valor made a very bad vow. And his vow was, 
When I come home, Lord, if you give me the victory, whatever comes out of my house to meet me, I will sacrifice to you. We're going to talk about this. Now, first of all, I'm thinking, if I'm going to make a vow, anything coming out of my house, I probably don't want to sacrifice. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So he makes this vow, and they go out, and they win the battle, and that's where the chapter ended last week. He was a mighty man of courage. He went in and great, did great battle. He won the, you know, and the Lord brought him the victory. But sadly, in that fleshly, faithless moment, he made a rash vow. And you and I can do the same thing. In a fleshly moment, we can make rash vows. We can have harsh words. I'm going to openly confess to you guys that the way that I most often get into my flesh is when I respond to someone attacking me. Anybody else relate to that at all? Somebody, and I praise God, I'm getting better. You know, because I get attacked a lot. But you know what? When it happens, you know, you, then your flesh, you know, that you feel the hairs on the back of your neck just kind of rise up. And you know if you open your mouth and say anything, it's not going to be godly. And you're just like... And they call it now in the office, the Pastor Dave, I just don't say anything. I go... And if I give you this, that means I got nothing good to say. So I'm going to say nothing. And I'm probably going to start walking away from you right now. And so we see here that this is where this tongue and this rash stuff can come out of our mouth so quickly. And so often that's the first place we see the flesh. Coarse jesting, insulting speech, harsh words, rash vows. So I titled the message tonight, The Heavy Consequences of Misspoken Words. And misspoken is probably not a good choice. Because we don't misspeak, we speak them on purpose usually. Amen? But... Give us the benefit of the doubt. The heavy consequences of misspoken words. And we're going to give three points. Number one is be careful what you promise. Don't attempt to bribe God with your words. Don't try to make God do what you want with your words. That's not what it's about. We'll see that tonight. Second of all, we'll see that a soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up strife. So be careful what you promise. And soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up strife. And then thirdly, our words give us away. The Bible says out of the overflowing of a man's heart, his mouth speaks. You want to know what somebody really is all about? Just hang out with them and listen to them talk. Amen? You listen to them talk long enough, you're going to find out what's in their heart. So God's chosen a leader, and it's Jephthah. He's just won this battle, and now he's coming home. Now, to me, I thought about this. Have you ever seen, you know, the commercials that just make me weep? You ever seen these commercials or, or they'll show real life footage of like a soldier coming home from Iraq or somewhere else and his wife is there with the baby he's never seen before and he runs into their arms and they're embracing, I'm done, I'm game over. And I'm just like, how awesome. And you know what? They've come back victorious or, and, you know, at least coming back alive, right? The person's been praying. They come back. They're excited to see their family member. Well, that's what, how this is starting off. We're beginning in verse 34 of chapter 11. Jephthah's coming home. The victory's been won. And you would think that this would be the most glorious time. Because he went out. He was obedient to the Lord. The battle was won. He's coming home to meet his family. They've gotten word about this great victory but we're going to see, be careful what you promise. Don't attempt to bribe God and count the cost before you make a vow or a promise. And we're going to learn from Jephthah. Look what it says in verse 34. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah. Again, the victory's been won. They destroyed 20 cities of the Ammonites. They brought the Ammonites to their knees. They've wiped them out. He's coming in. And remember that he had asked. 
If you make me the king, or if, you, if I lead you in it and we win the battle, promise me that you'll make me the leader. And they said, we will. So guess what? The battle's been won. He's the leader of all of Israel. He's coming back to his family. This is a wonderful moment. He's filled with the Spirit. He's been anointed by God. He's got, had both godly wisdom and, and godly courage in defeating the Ammonites. After 18 years of bondage, they've finally been set free from their idolatry. What a great time this should have been. But sadly, a rash vow and a promise made is going to change things. Look at verse, rest of 34. There was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing. Now, in those days, when a, victory, a, a victor returned, often the women would come out in dancing in a joyous way to celebrate. It says in 1 Samuel, after David slayed Goliath, Now it happened as they were coming home when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel and were singing and dancing with tambourines with joy and musical instruments. So this was like the the ticker tape parade. We've won. This is a wonderful thing. His daughter comes out not knowing that in coming to greet her father, she's actually sealed her own fate. Look what it says. And she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. You know, there's such a special relationship between dads and their girls. Man, I'm just speaking from personal experience. I got one daughter and you don't want to get between me and her or you're in trouble. Because I just love her so much I can hardly stand it. And you know what? God's given dads a supernatural love for their girls and for their boys. But there's something special about that father-daughter relationship. You know, I'm going to walk her down an aisle one day and take her hand out of my hand and put it in someone else's hand, and it's not going to happen until I know that's God's man. You know, and that's a special thing. And so he comes home, and this is his only child. He has one child, his daughter. And he comes home, and here she is coming out to greet him as a daughter who loved her father, no doubt would. And again, there's such a special relationship there. So she comes out in joyous celebration. It should have been a great time of him jumping down from his horse and running to his daughter. And again, I think of those news clips of the guy getting off the plane and running to his daughter and running to his wife and embracing her. But instead, look at verse 35. And it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. Now this is not exactly the joyous celebration you would think you would see. You know why? Because dad made a promise. And you know what? It was a promise he didn't need to make. And we'll talk about that. But you know what? He tore his clothes. And in the Bible, whenever you see someone tearing their clothes, it's an act of great grief. They're grieving. They're beside themselves. And they rip their clothes just to say, I'm undone. I'm beside myself. And he's grieving when he should have been rejoicing. Why is he grieving? Because he remembered the promise he made to the Lord and he remembered its consequences. Thus, he was grieved because his daughter was the first one out of the house. Now, I thought about this and I thought, what else did he expect to be coming out of the house? Your wife? Is that any better? You got a wife and a daughter. Who else is coming out of the house? Are you hoping Fido's coming out? I don't know. The dog, the cat that rolls up on the carpet. I mean, what is it? But I, I'm thinking, and again, maybe. So here he is. He comes home, and his daughter comes out. And he says, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. 
You are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. So what word? It was his vow. The previous chapter, verse 30 and 31, it says, or this, this chapter, excuse me, back in verse 30 and 31, and Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, saying, if you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the people of Ammon, shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it as a burnt offering. Again, I'm thinking my house is probably not what I'm choosing. But at the same time, the Bible says, I cannot sacrifice that which costs me nothing. But we also know that Jephthah, though a man filled with the Holy Spirit, obviously was not a man who really studied the Word of God much yet. Because are we to ever sacrifice human beings? What's the answer? Absolutely not. We'll talk about an interpretation of this in a moment. But this is going to cost him more than he ever imagined. And again, a vow or a promise to God is not a bad thing. But we don't make vows to get God to do what we want. We make vows. We're not bribing God. Vows are a, a voluntary way of thanking God, not bribing God. Amen? You know, Lord, I love you. And you know what? I'm just, I have such a burden on my heart that, Lord, I'm going to give this part of, portion of my life to you. I'm going to give this to you. Not out of bribing God to get something from Him, but out of a desire and a passion to serve the Lord. Vows can be faithless too. You know, sometimes people use the word vow or fleece. By the way, laying out a fleece, not an act of faith, but an act of faithlessness. I have people say that, act like they're people of great faith. You ought to put a fleece out before God. And What, you don't have the Bible? You don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of you? We don't need to put lamb's wool out and tell God what to do with it to make sure it's okay, amen? We don't roll dice, right? Told you I had a friend who was bowling one time and said, if I bowl a strike, I'm going to ask that girl out on a date. I'm like, and, and he prayed. And I'm like, dude, that's wrong in so many levels, I don't even know where to start with you. That's like praying and shaking a magic eight ball. <laughs> right? No. We have the Holy Spirit, amen? Now, there are people that made vows in the Bible that were very godly. Hannah made a vow, right? Hannah said, Lord, I'm barren. If you give me a son, I'll give him to you. And Lord, he'll serve you all of his life, and a razor will never touch his body. And you know what? She dedicated her son's life, and God was glorified through it. And I believe God was preparing her to bring her to the point where she was ready to give her son away. He waited to give her a child until she was ready to give him away because he knew the plan he had for Samuel. And see, it's not us trying to twist God's will to ours. It's getting in line with God's will when we make a vow like this. So we're not to make bar- try to make bargains with God. We need to be careful what we promise to God and careful that whatever we promise, we fulfill it. Solomon wrote this in Ecclesiastes, When you vow unto a vow unto God, do not deter to pay it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better is it that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. If you make a promise to God, follow through. Because no promise to God is anything he would force you to do. But if you feel by, led by the Spirit to do it, then be faithful to it. Be a man or a woman of your word. Jethro knew the importance of keeping his vow, and he was going to do it even if it hurt him. I have to confess to you, I would be looking for every angle out of this one right now. Oh, wait a minute, Lord, I didn't think she was coming out. Uh, how about the 57th thing that comes out of my house? Yeah, Lord, can we do something here? And we see here this spirit-filled, anointed 
judge of Israel would not go back on his word, but his vow was made, again, outside, I believe, clearly of God's will. He showed great wisdom in fighting Ammon, but now he shows a lack of wisdom in making a vow when he didn't need to. Did God already tell me he was going to give him victory? What's the answer? Yes. If God tells you he's going to give you victory, do you need to make vows about it? No. None. God already said it's yours. I'm going to bring, I'm with you. He poured out his Holy Spirit upon him. That should be enough. But yet too often we want to, again, make bargains with God. I believe it shows a lack of faith on his part. Now, we know he's in God's hall of faith later. So we know that God is still working with this man. Again, foolishly, he had not truly counted the cost. And we must too learn in battles of life that it's not my will but his will. And we need not negotiate with God. But we need to get in line with what he desires to do. He says to, you, to him, for I've given my word, I cannot go back on it. Now watch his daughter. This makes things, would make things even harder for me. Because look what she says. She said to him, My father, if you've given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, the people of Ammon. I think it might have been easier on the dad if she had thrown a fit. You know, how hard would it be? He says, okay, whatever you vowed, I'm uh, okay. All right. You know what it reminds me of? Isaac. Remember Abraham taking Isaac up the mountain? And we often think of Isaac being this little boy and he's holding his hand, right? Isaac was probably in his late 20s and his dad was a hundred and something. Now, who do you think wins that wrestling match? <laughs> so the point is that Isaac freely laid himself down. A picture, of course, of whom? Jesus. He carried the wood, right? Went up the hill, carrying the wood, laid himself down freely, the father taking his life. And we know that it says right then that the Lord provided, not for himself, provided himself a sacrifice. And he looked up and saw the sacrifice in the thicket who took Isaac's place. Now, this is a powerful testimony and no doubt gripping words for Jephthah to hear these words coming from his daughter. And there's a lot of controversy about these next few verses, so I'm going to give you both sides. Look what it says. Then she said to her father, Let this be done for me. Let me alone for two months, that I may go, go alone, that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. So he said, Go. And he sent her away for two months, and she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. Now what does this mean? Well, we know this means she's a young girl. Younger. And that she's probably going with all her young friends for two months to go away and basically uh, weep and mourn the fact that she will never have children. Now, you need to understand something. In those days, there was basically no greater curse than not having kids. Women who were barren, they were considered, what, what have you done wrong? And for her, she would never know the joy of motherhood. She would never be able to increase the number of the children of Israel. And since this was her father's only child, he would not have any more offspring going forward. This was a heavy-duty price for the family to pay. And she goes away and she mourns her virginity, the fact that she will never be able to have children. Now, that brings us to verse 39. And you need to keep in mind the fact that she's mourning her virginity because it tells me something about the potential uh, meaning of verse 39. And so it was at the end of two months that she returned to her father and he carried out his vow, which he had vowed. Now, what does that mean? 
Did he kill her? Okay, let me give you both sides, because here's my answer. I don't know. I'll be, I have a side I'm going to pick when I'm done, but I don't know for sure. Let me tell you why I don't know. First of all, back in, in that verse right there, in, or in the, ver, the previous verse, in verse 31, it says, Then it shall be that whosoever comes forth of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the children of Israel, surely shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it as a burnt offering. Well, that word for and there in Hebrew is W-A-W. And that word can mean and or or. So the translation could also be, Then it shall be that whatsoever comes forth out of the doors of my house when I return in peace from the children of Ammon, surely it shall be the Lord's, or I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So that means it could mean that from this point of view, that if a person comes out, I'm going to dedicate that person to the Lord completely, and that person will serve God in the tabernacle, and that's where they will be the rest of their life, much like Samuel. Or, if it's an animal that comes out, or something that could be sacrificed, that can't serve in the temple, I will make it a burnt offering unto the Lord. Now, to be honest with you, that is not the view that most people hold. But, I have to confess, I lean in that direction. Now, let me tell you why. First of all, she bewailed her virginity. If they were going to kill her, would she be wailing her life? Because if she goes to serve in a temple, what does that mean? She's never going to be married, right? She's going to serve with the women. She's never going to have children. That's where she's going to be. But if she was going to die, I think it would be more than her virginity. She would be bewailing. Bewailing the fact that I'm about to die. So I believe, again, your pastor's opinion, I'll be very clear about that, that I believe that she was dedicated to the Lord. Now, we also know that there are women who are set apart, according to Exodus 38 and 1 Samuel 2, that there are women who are set apart to serve full-time in the tabernacle. And I believe Jephthah's daughters joined that group. Now, this would have been very hard for her because most of these women were women who'd been married, had children, were older, and were now dedicated to serving in the temple, so they had the joy of having a family. But she was going to go as a young woman and serve with them, and again, bewailing her virginity that she would never have children. His daughter and friends rightfully sorrow. Again, they could sorrow about the fact that she's not going to have children because she's going to go serve in the temple. It says, or notice again, look what it says. And so it was at the end of two months that she returned to her father and he carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed, she knew no man. Now, if you look at it from that perspective, it doesn't look like he carried out the vow. And the vow was, she knew no man. Now, if she died, she would know no man. But nowhere in the text does it say he put her to death. Nowhere. And I'm praising God for that. Now, it doesn't really matter if she's in heaven either way. Amen. But the fact of a man who was in God's hall of faith sacrificing his daughter, I don't see that. He would, I don't think he'd be in God's hall of faith if he's killing his kids and sacrificing them. I don't think so. And so, again, just your pastor's opinion. By sending this unmarried only daughter to the service of the tabernacle for the rest of her life, it shows how seriously he takes the word of God and his promise to God. And again... He knew it well enough that it would be an abomination to the Lord to offer a sacrifice. Now, let, let me ask you another question. If he was going to offer as a sacrifice, wouldn't he have to take her where? Where would he have to take her to offer as a sacrifice? Tabernacle. 
or the temple. Now, if he goes to the tabernacle, who's going to be there? The priests. Do you think any priest is going to let anybody, let alone the judge of Israel, sacrifice his daughter? No way. And again, my opinion. But I don't believe that he would, there's just no way. He'd, go, he'd talk him out of it. He might hit him in the head with a mallet and change his mind. You're out of your mind. You're not sacrificing. No way. Because only they were the ones that could carry it out. There's not one word in Scripture about her, about her being sacrificed. Now, just to give you a balanced view, there's a second view that says he did. Where do they get this? Well, we know that this was a time that was very depraved and that idolatry was going on. One of the gods they were serving was a god by the name of Molech. You know what they did to the god Molech? They sacrificed their children. And because the children of Israel were part of the ones that were worshiping Molech, it's very well likely that some of the children of Israel were sacrificing their kids. So this wasn't something that wasn't being done at all in Israel at the time. Because for 18 years they'd been caught up in idolatry. Second of all, there's a man by the name of Josephus. He's not, he's not a biblical writer, but he's a historian from not very many years after the time of Jesus. And if you read Josephus, he's not a believer. He never became a believer. He was just a Jewish historian. Well, he writes, Accordingly, when the time was over, he sacrificed his daughter as a burnt offering. That's what Josephus says. So you, have, you certainly have some who believe that it happened. But you know what? If he did sacrifice her, I can think of few things more outside of God's will. This is not what God would want. And I would also say this. He didn't know the Bible very well because in Leviticus, it says that you can purchase back somebody who you've made as a vow unto the Lord. You guys remember that from Leviticus? You could buy them back with silver. Do you think he might buy his daughter back with some silver? Again, personal opinion. I don't believe he did it. But at the same time, the reason he got himself into this mess is he made a rash vow he didn't have to make. Why did he do it? Because he wasn't completely convinced that God was going to give him the victory on his own. He thought, I've got to make sure this is really going to happen. So I'm going to dig deep and make a vow. You know what else? I get, that word makes me sick because of what has come to mean on Christian television today. Seen that word? Make your vow. Call it make your thousand dollar love pledge vow, right? That grieves the heart of God, doesn't it? God doesn't need your money. Our Father's got a cattle on a thousand hills, amen? And where God guides, God provides, and God will move on people's hearts and they'll give with a cheerful heart. And if anybody twists your arm to give, you run away. And it just breaks my heart to see this noise and this garbage that happens. Guys, let's just fall in love with Jesus. And quit trying to trick him into doing things we want. And we play, if you plant your seed, then he'll give you and just, just believe. Oh, stop it already. Just fall in love with Jesus, amen? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you, amen? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. In all your ways, acknowledge him, amen? That's where it starts. Not manipulating God. God wants us to be people who learn to keep our word to Him, but He also is one who never wants us to make and does not condone rash or foolish promises. God does not condone those things. We need to be careful that we're being led by the Spirit when we make those kinds of promises to God. Lastly, before we move on, it may sound silly, 
Almost like a bad joke, but it's true. We should never sacrifice our children. You might say, well, of course, I would never do that. Let me ask you a question. What's more important right now, your kids or your career? What's more important, your kids or your hobby? Who do you spend more time with? Again, you got to go work. A man who does not work shall not eat. And part of the way that you minister to your family is you provide for them. And dads, we absolutely should be doing that. Amen? Amen. But at the same time, kids spell love, T-I-M-E. You know, my kids don't remember everything I've been to, but they'll never forget the things I missed. And I, you know, that's the reason I was at the Little League game right before I came here. Because, you know what? My kids need to know they're the number one priority in my life. After the Lord, it's my kids. My kids and the kingdom. The kingdom comes first. But I want to live a life in front of them, and that can't happen if I don't spend time with them. You know, too often dads think, moms think, that by providing stuff for our kids, we're blessing them. I found in talking to kids, I was a high school pastor for 15 years, I found that kids want you a lot more than they want stuff. They want to hang out with you. They want to spend time with you. Make them the priority. Don't sacrifice our kids. And he says there, She knew no man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. Now, they could be mourning her death, or they could be mourning the fact that she went straight into temple service as a young woman. This was a friend of theirs. She went in straight into temple service. She was never able to have a family. It would apply in both cases. So again, be careful what you promise. There's a heavy consequence for misspoken words. Count the cost before you promise. And again, don't do it to purchase favor, but only do it in gratitude to your loving Heavenly Father. Next chapter. A soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up strife. Look what happens. Then the men of Ephraim gathered together and crossed over toward Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the people of Ammon and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house down on you with fire. Does this sound familiar? Chapter 8. Gideon goes out and defeats the Midianites. The battle's over. It's been won. Who shows up? Ephraim. What did they say? You didn't call us. You didn't tell us to come help. You got all the spoils. We didn't get any. We want to fight you. I'm amazed at how many people love to pile on when it's all done. (laughs) Victory's been won. We want to get ours now. You went out and did all the heavy lifting. We just want to show up at the end and just kick me down some stuff. We want to join the glory. We want to be in the ticker tape parade next to the people that laid down their lives. You know what? In Gideon's case, it's interesting because Gideon responds in one way, and we're going to see Jephthah respond the exact opposite way. Because how did Gideon respond? When they showed up, Gideon looked at them, and God bless Gideon because this brother has some patience. They showed up and said, you know, you didn't call us, and, oh, and we want part of it. Oh, you know what Gideon says? You guys are so much greater than me. And you know what? The, the least of what you have among your people is greater than the best that we have. Come and join in the spoils. It's all yours. It's all good. Come on down. And you know what? Gideon was an example of a soft answer turning away wrath. He said, you want to make a name for yourself? Fine. You guys want to join in the spoils? Knock yourself out. I don't care. I'm not doing it for the Lord anyway. It doesn't make any difference to me. A soft answer indeed does 
turn away wrath. He didn't say, hey, Mr. Big Bad Ephraim, we didn't need you before, we don't need you now, get out of here. Didn't say that. Could have. He didn't respond to them in such a way. Instead, he was humble. You know what else he could have said? I know another guy who tried to be preeminent. His name's Lucifer. How does it feel to be Satan-like? That would have gone over real well. Instead, he said, you know what? These guys are my brothers in the Lord because they were family. They're all tribes of Israel, right? These guys are my brothers. That's fine. You didn't show up for the battle. It's okay. We want it. Come on in. Join in with us. You guys, and you know what? Their anger was turned away because of the soft answer. And a soft answer, this is the way we should respond, you guys. Jephthah's going to respond the way that some of us respond. I've done it. Maybe none of you have. He's going to take a totally another approach. We're going to burn your house down with fire. I, I love this. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if you went out and did a bunch of hard work and won a battle, and then your brother came over and said, thanks for helping me out, I'm burning your house down. They should have been blessing him and praising him, right? God bless you guys. We were caught up in idolatry and you helped deliver us. Praise the Lord. Instead, they said, we're burning your house down. Now, Jephthah's going to, and you're going to, and some of you might think, yeah, they deserve to be talked to the way he talks to them. Because when I read it, I kind of think, yeah. Who do you think you are showing up late? Who do you think you are threatening to burn my house down? So look at verse 2. Jephthah said to them, my people and I were in a great struggle with the people of Ammon. First of all, for, he basically says, for 18 years, we were, Ammon was against us. Where were you then? We were in a great struggle. Where were you? 18 years. I didn't see you stepping up. Not only were you not around for 18 years, but look what he says. And the people, with the people of Ammon, and I called you, and you did not deliver me out of their hands. I called you to come, and you didn't come. 18 years, did nothing. Then I, God anointed me, and so I went out and I told everybody to come, and who didn't show up? You. This is not quite the soft answer turning away wrath, is it? This is getting in your chest with both feet, right? This is like, you didn't show up, so you, I owe you nothing. And if you keep talking, you're going to get it. You know what I mean? And this is kind of Jephthah, a little different than Gideon. But what's amazing, both men are in the hall of faith. And God a God of grace. Should be an encouragement to us. When I looked, you didn't come. When I called, where were you? Didn't show up. So when I saw, verse 3, that you would not deliver me, I took my life into my hands and crossed over against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivered them into my hand. The Lord delivered them into my hand. That's a key part of the verse. Jephthah doesn't say, well, I mounted up this great strategy and went down there and tore them up. What he said was, you didn't show up. I responded in obedience to what the Lord called me to do. And I went down there and God brought the victory. God is the one who delivers us. Jephthah's idea is clear. God won the victory through him when the Ephraimites stood by and did nothing. They had an opportunity to help, but they did not respond. Then it says there, The Lord delivered them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Why is it you want to fight me instead of saying, praise the Lord? Now, you know when I see a clear application today? is so many who are more concerned about making names for their churches, for their ministries, 
or for themselves than being concerned about God being glorified. So many today are bummed out because you had a big crusade, but you didn't get them involved, and their name wasn't on the placard, so I'm going to go eat sour grapes and be mad at you. You know what? If people get saved, praise God. And who cares if your name's on it or near it or if you were invited or didn't know about it or anything? We want to see people saved, amen? We want to see God glorified. It's not about building anybody's church or magnifying anybody's name. The only name that should ever be magnified is the name of Jesus Christ and nobody else's. And so we see him here again addressing this. Why have you come up to me this day to fight against me? We're co-laborers. We're fighting a common enemy. Why are we battling with each other? If you can pray for your pastor, one of my biggest burdens today is to have greater interaction with other churches in Santa Cruz. Greater opportunity to minister to and with other pastors. And I've tried to be more proactive in that, but keep praying for me. And I have to confess to you, sometimes it's hard. Because sometimes I feel like a voice crying out in the wilderness. I'll start talking to people and they'll tell me how, I mean, how far away they've gotten from the Word of God. I had a guy at the old office come one day and invite us to a concert. And I started talking to him. And I said, how come you don't go to the evangelicals minister? He goes, well, I'm not evangelical. I said, oh, so what are you? He goes, well, you would call me liberal. I said, well, what does that mean? Well, I don't necessarily believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And I don't necessarily believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And I don't really believe in the resurrection. And he started going, I'm like, and you have church because? Why do you gather together if Jesus Christ isn't God? What's the point? You've heard me say it before, throw horns on the wall and call it the Elks Club because it's not church. I don't get it. And so, you know, at the same time, I need to learn to be more like Gideon than Jephthah, amen? Just to love people and find out what we have in common and try to reach them with the love of Jesus Christ, amen? And most of these pastors, it breaks my heart because they got no idea what to teach. We sit around the table and they go, oh yeah, what are you guys teaching, man? What are you teaching next? Well, oh, I just got this new series off the internet on, on godly finances. Well, what are you doing? Oh, I got this thing, you know, I'm doing the 40 days of purpose for the ninth time. And you know what? If God used that in your life, God bless you. But here's the point. The reason that took off so much is there were so many pastors who didn't know what to teach out of the Bible. Can we just teach the Bible? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? Word of God. And so they go around the table. What do you teach? What do you? They get to me and they go, what are you teaching? Uh, judges and First Thessalonians. What do you mean? <laughs> there are books in the Bible. You know, you... Well, where did you get this series for that? It's in the Bible. You just open it up and, well, where do you have like a thing with a, you know, handouts? And I go, no, no, we just hand out Bibles. But pray for me because you know what? I don't want to ever come across like I've got it all figured out and they don't because I don't. I'm one beggar leading another beggar to the bread. And I'm a sinner saved by grace. I just praise God that as a young man, I was raised in Calvary Chapel and I was taught this. I think so much of it is just, get, what, no matter what you call your church, just getting to a church where the Word of God is being taught. If you go to a church, you don't, you don't, you'll know if you have to go in or not. Just see if people in the parking lot have Bibles when they're walking in. 
If they don't have no, any Bibles, go find another church. So we see here, why are you coming against me? Why, why are you coming against me? We're brothers. We've just defeated the enemy. We're going we're to be restored to worship of the true and living God. Now watch how Ephraim responds. Now Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. Well, it looks like he initiated it. We'll keep reading. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because, they said, you Gileadites are fugitives from Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the, the Manassites. So he confronts them and says, guys, why are you fighting against me? You know what they did? They called them names. You guys are just a bunch of fugitives and outcasts and renegades. That's all you are. And Jephthah was not quite Gideon-like. So Jephthah says, okay, we'll find out. Now, the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim. I find this interesting that this doesn't look like it was a major battle, does it? Maybe it was. But I, I got an idea that these guys, as, as we used to say when I played football, all had no cattle. What I mean by that is a big mouth, but no game behind it. You know what I mean? There'd be these guys that had all the right sweatbands on, look really pretty walking out on the field, could talk all kind of trash, and they get on the field and just run right over the top of them. And it's so true. These guys, like the bully in the yard, right, who talks a good game, who's talking, we're going to come and burn your house down. You just wait. We're coming. Why come you didn't invite us? That's it. We're burning your house to the ground. The fight happens. It's a, it's a half a sentence. And it says, the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim. If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? Amen. Now, the men of Gilead seem to conquer them easily, but remember, Proverbs says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up strife. And you know what? Jephthah didn't have a soft answer here, did he? Not really. And it could be that this was ultimately God's plan to take care of Ephraim. He said, okay, I've had enough of you. You guys keep showing up after it's over and picking a fight, I'm just going to take care of you. But Proverbs also says this, The beginning of strife is like releasing water. Therefore, stop contention before a quarrel starts. Don't you know when the quarrel's about to start? What's the answer? You know if you open your mouth one more time. It's on! Right? And you know what happens the most? Let's be honest. Marriage. You know if you say one more word, it's not going to be good. You know it, you know you shouldn't say it, and then you open your mouth and say it anyway. <laughs> well, the only reason I'm grumpy is you burned the food anyway, that's why I thought, you know. <laughs> I cook for you, and you know, oh, that's not good. <laughs> Don't do it. Just learn to shut it, right? You need to learn to go, hmm, okay. <laughs> a soft answer would have avoided a war among these brothers, wouldn't it? Gideon proved it. When they showed up with Gideon, he, hey, you guys, you guys are awesome. God bless you. Yeah, fine, come on in. Take your, help yourself. You want part of the spoils? Have them. I don't care. I'm doing it for the Lord. It doesn't matter to me. Take it. That's the right attitude. So the heavy consequences of misspoken words. Be careful what you promise. Count the cost. Be careful. Be faithful to your vow. Secondly, we saw that a soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up strife. Now, lastly, we're going to see that our words give us away. Your words reveal who you really are. You want to know who a person is again. 
spend time with them. You'll also find out that your words reflect who you're hanging out with. Look at verse 5. The Gileadites seized the fords of the Jordan before the Ephraimites arrived. These were the the ways they could cross over to get back to their own land. So they not only wiped them out, but then they ran back and cut off all their escape routes and said, when they try to escape, kill them. Nobody gets home. These guys are all children of Israel. This is so sad what happens when we get in our flesh. So they're wiping out, in a sense, their own family. Now watch what happens. It says here, And when any Ephraimite who escaped said, Let me cross over, the men of Gilead would say, Are you an Ephraimite? If he said no, then they would say to him, Say Shibboleth. Now what kind of, what is that? I'm not an Ephraimite. I want to cross over. Okay, say Shibboleth. This is a test. Because you know what? The Ephraimites couldn't say Shibboleth. They would say Sibboleth. It's kind of like, you know, people from Boston say Pak the Ka, right? You know what I mean? We all got an accent. So he said, okay, say this word. Say Ka. You know what I mean? <laughs> say Car. Ka. Oh, you're not. Yeah, no, you're an Ephraimite. And so what happens here, they're being put to the test, and their words are revealing who they are. Just like for you and I today, our words reveal who we are. It says, and he would say, Sibboleth, because they can't pronounce the H. For he would not pronounce it right. Then they would take him and kill him. That's a tough test. Car, ka, dead. I caught your accent, you're toast. You're an Ephraimite trying to hide it. You know, it's interesting, the word shibboleth today, it actually has, if you look it up in the English dictionary, or English language dictionary, it says that it is an acid test. It's a word that is used to test the authenticity of something today. And that came from the Bible, like so many things do. Amen? Well, we can't have the Bible in our education. Well, if you use a dictionary, you're going to have to. Where any of the meanings of those words came from? You know what? As Christians, people ought to know us by the way we talk. People ought to hear us. Amen. <laughs> people ought to know us. But you know what? When you talk about Jesus, it ought to be obvious to everybody that you don't just know about him, but he's your best friend. That he is the closest and dearest person in your life. You have intimate fellowship with him. And it ought to be detectable in your everyday speech. We ought to be walking around singing praise songs. Amen? You know, it ought to just be over. The Bible, oh, the overflowing of a man's heart, his mouth speaks. What are you passionate about? All I got to do is hang out with you for a little while. I think you can find out a lot about somebody getting locked in an elevator with him for about an hour. I love plane flights. It's one of my favorite mission fields. I love really long plane flights. I love to sit on the aisle. You can't get out. Where are you going? Got two people right here. Okay, guess what? You know, Captive audience. But you know what? Our words ought to reflect our heart. And we ought not be ashamed of Him. You know, so, so often today, we want to water it down and dial it down because we're afraid. And I'll tell you what. We ought to be shouting it from a mountaintop with our full voice, 
We love Jesus. We're not ashamed of it. Amen? He hung on a cross for us. How can we not stand up in front of the world for Him? And it ought to reflect in the way that we speak, in the way that we talk, in everything that we say and do. And it says there, listen to this. And they killed him at the fords of Jordan. There fell at that time 42,000 Ephraimites. Wow. Why did it start? Because they were striving for position that didn't belong to them. They were in their flesh. And you know what? Jephthah, at least in this case, whether it was the Lord behind it or not, did not return their evil speech with soft speech. Instead, he went right at them. And in the end, you got brothers killing brothers. Again, their speech was different. And why was their speech different? Why was the speech of the Ephraimites different? Weren't they marching through the, the wilderness together? What's the answer? Yes. Were they serving as slaves together in Egypt? When did their language change? You know when it changed? When the Ephraimites isolated themselves and got out of fellowship with their brothers, and then they started speaking differently. That's what happens to us when we start hanging out with the world instead of hanging out with God and His people. Amen? If all your fellowship is with, and don't take this wrong, uh, a lot of foul language, a lot of different, you know, uh, construction worker. I know you'll go, oh yeah, I've never heard anybody cuss on a construction site, but... But the truth is, if that's the only place you hang out, guess what's going to start happening to your mouth? Right? If you only hang out in that environment, you're going to become like your environment. That's why we need more fellowship. Amen? Bad company does indeed corrupt good morals. Last verses here. And look what it says. And Jephthah judged Israel six years. And Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried among the cities of Gilead. So he judged six more years. They had peace yet again. Why? Because Ammon had been removed and so had Ephraim. I find it interesting that they removed outside oppression and inward division. You see that? They moved the outward attack from the idolaters and the inward division of Ephraim, who obviously had been divisive for many years now. They did it with Gideon, didn't they? And so the division was removed, the oppression was removed, and now, man, they were serving God again. And look at the last verses. After him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons. He gave away 30 daughters in marriage and brought in 30 daughters from elsewhere for his sons. He judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died and was buried in Bethlehem. After him, Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel. He judged Israel 10 years. Then Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried in Ahijalon in the country of Zebulun. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirathonite, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 young donkeys. He judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Perithonite, died and was buried in Perithon, in the land of Ephraim, in the mountains of the Amalekites. 31 years of peace. 31 years. And how did it start? Jephthah. The one guy that seemed like the one that nobody could use. His own brothers kicked him to the curb. His own brothers disowned him. But God had a plan for him. The eyes of the Lord search to and fro among the whole earth, seeking one. He can show himself strong on account of one whose heart is loyal to him. God is still looking for that man or woman. He's looking for that man or woman in your office, in your neighborhood. We have a pastor on staff here that I met at a Bible study I taught at work. Isn't that awesome? 
God does that stuff. So I want to encourage you. May we be available. But may we remember this. The heavy consequences of misspoken words. Be careful what you promise. Don't attempt to bribe God with future obedience in response to immediate blessing. Lord, if you'll bless me, then I'll give you. Lord, I'm just going to give you my life no matter what because you've already blessed me. Amen? Secondly, a soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up strife. Next time, remember that Holy Spirit, that Holy Spirit filter, I call it. Youth pastor in San Jose, he was a junior high guy, I was a high school guy. We used to say to each other, filter, because you know what? He'd start to say something, and he'd go, uh, and I'd go, filter, and he'd go, oh, yeah, you know. Run those words to the Holy Spirit filter before they come out of your mouth, amen? Isn't that a good idea? Won't have harsh words flying out of there. Lastly, our words give us away. They reveal who we really are. They reflect where we really live, who we're hanging out with. Are you hanging out with the Lord? It'll be pouring out of your mouth. If you're hanging out with the world, it'll be pouring out of your mouth, amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, that you've given us your Holy Spirit to help govern our every step, our every word that comes from our mouth. We thank you that you've given your word, that we can meditate upon it, Lord, that we can bury it and and burn it deep into our hearts, and Lord, that as we hide your word in our heart, as we're filled with your Holy Spirit, Lord, I pray that that's what would come back out of our mouths as well. Lord, I pray for opportunities for each of us to be salt and light to a lost and dying world. I pray for the very next time where there's a choice between a soft answer and strife, Lord, that we would return a soft answer. Not, Lord, for any other reason, but that you might be glorified. That we might be able to draw people unto you. May we not strive for position. May we not care about our reputation. May our only focus and passion be that you would be glorified and the people around us would be loved supernaturally. So Lord, we thank you, we praise you for your love, for your grace, for your infinite mercy. Lord, I pray that you would steer that small rudder in our mouths, Lord. May we give it to you completely, what comes out of our mouth, the attitudes that we have. May our our hearts overflow our love for you, and may that pour out of our mouths. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Everybody stand and close the worship song.